Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 161 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Good to have you back here, back on a normal schedule for us. Yes, I'm ready. All right. Uh, well, let's jump right into it. Um, as always, take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on August 3rd. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 is up 0.6% for the month of August and down 12.8% for the year. The Dow flat for the month of August and down 9.7% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index up 2.2% for August and down 19% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 1.3% for August and down 14.7% for the year. And then the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 0.8% for the month of August and down 16.4% for the year. Uh, three month T bill rate at 2.52%, the two year Treasury rate at 3.1%, and the 10 year Treasury rate at 2.73%. So we have seen as stocks have rallied uh, in July and starting here into August, Matt, we have seen rates come down. Absolutely. I mean, look at that inversion still on the two and 10. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So um, again, who knows if they're going to roll over for good or if it's just a breather, but um, important data nonetheless. And we would expect stocks to perform well when interest rates are coming down. Yeah. So I think it goes to show you just how far bonds got sold off earlier in the year as well. Right. And bonds have, have made a comeback too. corporates. Uh, high yield have had a nice bounce along with the stock market rally in July. So we'll see if that continues, at least for now, it's a short term bottom. That's right. So uh, heavy uh, economic data and news releases last week, Matt, Very starting heavy. Uh, number one, obviously, with Q2 GDP. Uh, that figure came in at minus 0.9%, and this follows the negative 1.6% reading in Q1, therefore meeting the criteria for a recession. Now, with that being said, any actual declaration of an official recession will come from the National Bureau of Economic Research and its Business Cycle Dating Committee, uh, and their decision is likely months away. I bet they have riveting parties. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Debating to call it an official recession or not. Or not a recession. So uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, to muddy the waters even more, does not use the simple measure of two contracting quarters in a row to call a recession, but instead looks at multiple factors. Uh, traditional definition of a recession, recession is a significant decline in economic activity that is spread across the economy and that lasts more than a few months. The committee's view is that each of the three criteria, depth, diffusion, and duration, needs to be met individually to some degree. On a related and hopeful note, the Atlanta Fed GDP Now indicator currently calls for an expansion of 2.1% in the third quarter. Um, so... I mean, I guess 
I'm not really as concerned whether this is going to be declared as a formal recession or not, because in my opinion, with regards to the stock market only, um, it doesn't really matter for me. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, for me, I'm old school. Two consecutive quarters, negative GDP, boom. Right. Pretty simple for me. Right. So um, we have seen layoffs to a certain extent, but it hasn't been wide and expansive, I don't think. Um, you and still the- have people spending a lot of money. Uh, people are spending more on credit cards. They're spending more on airfare, um, you know, but. You're seeing initial jobless claims every week slightly tick up just mm-hmm. a little bit. But it's nothing crazy. Nothing crazy. You're seeing so those job be- openings come down a little bit, just like I kind of previewed earlier in the year. Those are going to continue to go down the rest of the year. But again, it doesn't need to be like a blow off, you know, 10 million people losing their job to, to qualify as a recession. Yeah, I don't envision that being the case either. So um, again, with regards to the stock market, I don't think it really matters. I think it's more of a waste of time than anything that people are arguing about what the definition of a recession is or not. My two cents. Uh, also, last week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by the much anticipated 75 basis points or 0.75 percent. Um, their next meeting is in late September. Correct. Um, additional headlines, uh, personal consumption expenditures index or PCE that we've talked about before, climbed up to 6.8 percent in June compared with 6.3 percent in May. And again, this is the Fed's preferred inflation indicator. Core PCE, excluding food and energy prices, ticked higher by 4.8% for June compared to 4.7% in May. Gas prices continue their decline. In mid-June, the price for regular gas was over $5 a gallon nationally. Since then, there have been six consecutive weekly declines, and prices now average at $4.33 a gallon uh, nationally. So um, good news, gas prices have come in. Obviously, people want to see that <laughs> come in even more. I saw sub four yesterday. But it's at least I a star. Really? Interesting. I did. So again, um, we're still in the camp that inflation has peaked, but we'll see uh, how that plays out over the next several months. I have a piece on that here too, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. The first thing I had was a blog post from Ben Carlson titled Investing in Home Renovations versus Investing in Stocks. So Ben said that a reader asked him, I've been buying the dip in stocks for the past couple of months and feel pretty comfortable in my position. Should I continue to buy the dip or invest in my home? For example, a new fence, additional rooms, and bathrooms. So Ben says, I understand the line of thinking here, but I look at the stock market and investing in your home is two separate categories when it comes to capital allocation decisions. People invest in the market to grow their wealth, increase their standard of living and beat the rate of inflation over the long run. The stock market doesn't guarantee these outcomes, but it offers a high probability of it hitting those goals over the long run. Reinvesting in your home rarely offers excess return. Housing research firm Zonda put out a list of the expected payback on various updates to your home. Oh, this should be good. So for everything ranging from a simple garage door replacement to a master suite addition, this chart uh, shows the 2022 national averages of the costs that are recouped once someone sells the home after adding a new garage door, a new master suite. Nothing is ever done. There has to be nothing over dollar for dollar. It has to be nothing. It is kind of wild. So um, costs recouped the highest on garage door replacements 
manufactured stone veneer and minor kitchen remodels. Costs recouped are 93%, 91%, and 71% respectively. Interesting. And this is this is crazy to me. I, don't, I mean, I guess these numbers are right, but it says the average job cost of a master suite edition is over 350000 <laughs> What type of master suite are we talking about? <laughs> Must be blowing it up and redoing it. Holy cow. And for that, it's all the way down to only about 46% of the cost gets recouped. So um, we'll have Jenna throw this uh, chart up on uh, the YouTube video and also on our uh, show notes uh, after we're done here wow. at Jessup Wealth on Twitter or Jessup Wealth Management on LinkedIn or Facebook. But yeah, that's kind of crazy. A bath remodel mid-range, $27,000. That I believe. That I wow. believe. This is crazy. Especially when yeah. well, at the very like least, my wife is involved in the process. It's interesting to to go through and see what the prices average in 2022 for these renovations so uh moving on um he says that most of the recouped costs are in the 50 to 70 percent range in terms uh of the cost recouped that's not bad but it's certainly not as good as what you could earn in the stock market over time i hate to break it to you but hgtv is not realistic but i digress <laughs> A friend recently told me the estimate for new hardwood floors in his home. The number, <laughs> dad joke incoming, floored me. <laughs> That's something that you would say. <laughs> There's no possible way they're going to make that up on uh, the investment on the resale. The best example of psychic income I could give is this. Why do brides spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a wedding dress they're going to wear exactly one time? I asked my wife the same thing, by the way, but I digress. It makes no sense on the surface, but it does when you consider wearing the dress on one of the most important days of their lives, and it makes them very happy. It brings them joy. Homes can be decent investments depending on your timing, but most of the time they're an investment in psychic income, especially when it comes to renovations. So thinking through the cost benefit in terms of home renovations is a different hurdle rate. Putting up a new fence, adding a bedroom, or fixing up a bathroom might not make you as much money as investing in the stock market, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You just have to think about that investment in a different way. Will fixing up your home bring you more joy? Will it improve the quality of life? Will it make you happier? Probably. And what if I told you it's possible to buy the dip in stocks and fix up your home at the same time? Here we go. There's currently a record amount of home equity in the U.S. housing market right now. And according to Ben, it's about $27.7 trillion of U.S. Uh, homeowners' equity in their homes. The best reason for taking out a home equity line of credit is to renovate your home. You can write off the interest for tax purposes and upgrade it in a way that increases your enjoyment of the house. HELOC rates are higher than they were in the recent past, and they float with the level of interest rates, but they're not insane. If you happen to have a lot of equity just sitting in your home, I could think of worse things to do with it than invest it right back into your house. The typical term of these loans is 10 years of interest-only payments and then 15 years after that to pay back the principal, but you can pay it back at any time. As long as you can service this debt, this is why those loans exist in the first place. This would also allow you to continue deploying your liquid savings into the stock market. These are trade-offs to this. There are trade-offs to this strategy, just like everything else when it comes to financial decisions, but something worth running the numbers on. Absolutely agree with this. So I think it's really good because I think a lot of people are in this spot where 
you know, especially in the area that me and you live, Matt, a lot of these whole houses are really, really old that need a facelift. They need updating. And it's not cheap. Right. So, you know, people are always in this conundrum of, you know, should I put off the home renovations and, and max out my 401k and put a couple thousand dollars a year into my taxable account? Or should I just go ahead and, and do the home renovations? And like me and you have always talked about, you can't always look at home renovations as an investment. You can't. You know, you, it's your you start quality looking at of those life. optics. This is like the vacation home, you know, aspect. I'm going to own this vacation home, but a lot of times they're going in with, I'm making this as an investment. You got to differentiate those two things. Right, exactly. So, you know, the home equity line of credit is a really good thing to have. And I know that we've talked recently with some clients about, you know, just getting a home equity line of credit in case they need it because sure. it, just because you have it doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you have to cost use you it anything. right it's not going to cost you anything in, unless you use it right yeah, yeah. um so something worth uh considering i think uh next was uh a fun thought experiment from taylor schulte that i have and i went over this um two nights ago matt on our zoom market update with our clients i thought so, it was a great exercise um so i apologize if people are hearing this twice but i wanted to have this on the podcast as well because i really enjoyed this so taylor starts off by saying imagine that on january 1st of 1992 you meet a prophet who tells you the major events that will occur over the next 30 years <laughs> Here are a few of the noteworthy proclamations the prophet makes. Two of the three worst stock market declines in U.S. history, a 10-year period where the stock market return is negative, a, down, a downgrade of U.S. debt, a nationwide housing and mortgage crisis, the worst attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor, a 13-year war in Afghanistan, an oil price spike to almost $150 per barrel, intense political divide, the first global pandemic in 100 years, and the highest inflation rate in 40 years. That, 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 would, that would scare you pretty good there in 92, wouldn't it? I probably wouldn't invest either, <laughs> right? But with this being the case, how might have you responded? How would you have invested your money? Probably not so optimistically. It would have been difficult to invest in the stock market knowing that was coming. But as you probably guessed, this would have been a foolish approach because here's what happened. The day after you received this information from the profit in January of 1992, the S&P 500 opened at $417. As I write this, the U.S. stock market index stands at $3,983, almost a tenfold increase. And that does not include dividends, which have grown from $12.39 to $59.20. In other words, your dividend income has increased five times during a period in which inflation is up about two times. Boom. If you had chosen to reinvest your dividends during this period, your compounded return would have been about 9.75% per year. For context, this would have turned $100,000 into more than $1.6 million. With all that happened, the market still offered a total return of 16 times. Compound interest is mind-boggling, which is why Charlie Munger famously said, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. So I thought that this was really good because there's always, always, always going to be something going on in the world that's a threat to the market. But you can't make investment decisions based on every single thing that is going on in the economy, all over the world, in politics, with a pandemic, with inflation, with supply chain issues, with wars. You can't do it. You can't do it. Well put. I mean, you know, ultimately, when it comes to the market, 
There's always going to be reasons not to invest. Mm -hmm. And I prefer when the market is climbing a wall of worry. Mm -hmm. If there's no longer no excuses not to invest, that's when you're in market top. Right. Right. Because all the all the capital has been committed at that point. Yeah, it has. Right. So, um, again, really interesting thought experience um, and just goes to show that, you know, when it feels the most uncomfortable to do so, you probably should be buying. Right. Yep. And I'm not saying you have to be a contrarian all the time, but, you know, when you're comfortable and you feel good, usually it's not the best time to buy. True. You know, and I know true. this because we've been through it. I've Absolutely. had those same feelings before. Absolutely. Right? It's human nature. Uh, lastly, I have a tweet from Kelly Cox on uh, July 28th, uh, along with a description of it from the chart report. So today's chart of the day was shared in a note by Kelly Cox of eToro. Everybody, including the president, Cardi B, and your uncle is confused <laughs> over whether we're in a recession or not. But does it really matter at this point? Kelly reminds us that the stock market is usually a few steps ahead of economic data. On average, the S&P 500 peaks six months before the start of a recession, and it bottoms about three months before the end of a recession. It's played out pretty similarly so far in this cycle, considering the S&P 500 peaked on the first trading day of the year. And here we are seven months later. Recession or not, today's GDP print just confirms what the S&P 500 has been saying for months. Nobody for sure, or excuse me, nobody knows for sure if the S&P 500 has bottomed yet, but it will likely do so before the economic data and the headlines improve. So um, I don't think there's much more to say on that. We talk about this, I feel like, every week, especially in the times that we're in. But yeah, I mean, the stock market is going to be getting better here before the economic data does. Bingo. I mean, the best way I can say it very direct and simplistically for our viewers and listeners is this. In my opinion right now, the stock market's about nine months ahead of Main Street America. And so what you're going to see in Main Street America is things will most likely get worse before they get better. We're talking maybe some additional job losses as an example, uh, maybe some economic softness in different spots of the economy. But then people might see the stock market improve as we go later and later to the end of the year. And we've talked about it many times, but that's a likely scenario. It doesn't mean it's guaranteed to happen, but it's likely. Right, right. Uh, I will turn it over to you uh, to give us an update on inflation. I am ready. So here we go. First piece I have is inflation. Now, inflation is primarily measured by CPI. That's the Consumer Price Index. Two components that have caused this index to really move higher, Mark, are rents and commodity prices. We're seeing spot prices for commodities taking a nice tumble recently. Now, what's a spot price? Spot price means that they are selling what the commodity is selling for today on the CME, which is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, compared to the pass-through prices consumers are paying when they go through the checkout line, per se. So the first chart that Jenna's going to share with you now live on our, our YouTube and for our listeners on the various uh, traditional podcast uh, platforms, it'll be in our show notes that they can reference. And this is from Bespoke Investment Research on July 30th. First chart, it's going to show headline CPI has likely peaked for commodity prices. It shows two things, Mark. In the solid blue, it's going to show the Bloomberg Commodity Spot Index. And it's going to show 
the monthly average year-over-year change. And then it overlays it in light blue with the headline government CPI number year-over-year. What do you quickly see here? You're seeing that commodity prices have really come in. And as the data lags on the consumer price index in the coming months, that's going to help that CPI figure come down. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a forward looking, this is what's about to happen. The second chart has to do with rents. So now Jen's going to put up the second chart. It's going to show apartment list national rent index, its annual change. And that is going to be overlaid by the component that's lagging of rents in the consumer price index. Mm-hmm. So what is about to happen, and I'm being a prophet with data, <laughs> is the next couple of months. Profit, not a pundit. Both. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're going to see in the next couple of months, CPI numbers are going to start to come in. Mm-hmm. And the data is telling you this. Yeah. Two big components, commodities, rent. So again, what does this mean? My opinion, inflation has peaked. The pace of the decline in inflation is going to determine the Federal Reserve's future tightening campaign, which could pause or even end entirely sooner rather than later. That is why, in my opinion, you're seeing the markets improve lately. The market now has more visibility. The pace of interest rate hikes will most likely start to slow. Yeah, and I think... The market kind of got a feeling from that when uh, Jay Powell had his press conference um, last week. And I think that's why you saw markets rip after that, because they're like, oh, he didn't come out and directly say it. But he alluded to the fact that at some point in the not so distant future, rate hikes are going to slow and eventually they're probably going to have to cut. (laughs) Yeah, because they're probably going to take it too far. Right. Yeah. One other thing that I want to add before we move away from inflation is I I read something that one of the Fed presidents, Mary Daly, said yesterday. She's the Fed president that runs the San Francisco office. Um, She said, I don't feel the the pain of inflation anymore. I see prices rising, but I have had or excuse me, but I have enough. I don't find myself in a space where I have to make trade-offs because I have enough. And many Americans have enough. If you open up the dictionary to the word disconnected and her picture is going to be right there. That is not going to age well. Wow. And that's not going to go over well. And this is an individual that is partly in charge of policy, monetary policy. That's not good, Mark. No. And this is, and this was a tweet from Unusual Wales that I just pulled up. He goes, I want you to understand the ridiculousness of this. Fed Mary Daly sold dozens of securities from an account held jointly with her spouse worth thousands, given the Fed's trading restrictions. Her active salary is 423000 Wild. But she has enough. She has enough. And she thinks Americans have enough, too. Oh boy. That's brutal. Oh boy. That's brutal. All right. My next thing, I love that by the way. Um, Next thing is investor sentiment remains poor. Now, why is that a good thing? So, according to the weekly AAII sentiment survey, and AAII stands for American Association of Individual Investors, and our viewers and listeners can go right to that site. And all this data is there. You don't have to sign up for an account. Mm -hmm. It's all right there. 
This survey, this investor sentiment survey, has been negative for 17 straight weeks. This is the third longest streak in history, dating back to the late 1980s, Mark. It's even worse, even worse than the great financial crisis. So why does this matter for investors? When you look at the raw data, forward-looking returns for the S&P 500 index are good when sentiment is this poor. So right now, Jenna's gonna put up the chart of the consecutive weeks with a negative bull bear spread. And it shows you that bearishness just so dramatically right now on a consistent basis is outweighing bullishness, right? So according to Bespoke Investment Group on July 29th, you're gonna see by this next chart Jenna's about to put up that the forward-looking returns on a six-month in, six in one-year basis, forward-looking, when bearishness outweighs bullishness is very favorable looking back in history. If you're curious, as you look at this next chart for our YouTube viewers, the spread currently sits at negative 12.4. If you kind of look at that spread right now, you're going to see that on average, the average return in history is about 8%, 9% forward looking. But if you just look at kind of the, you know, the spread of the overwhelming bearishness right now, it's a good contrarian indicator when you look at history. Anything you'd like to add? No, it just adds to what we were talking about earlier that, you know, usually when you're like, I don't want to buy anything, you should be. There you go. Right. So next thing is, we're getting all this talk, as you alluded to at the top of the podcast, about two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. What happens next, Mark? Okay. Mm -hmm. So according to raw data from Bespoke Investment Group, the S&P 500 index's median gain is 31.6% in the year after the prior nine times we've seen back-to-back -back GDP declines with the index positive eight out of nine times. So now Jenna's going to show this chart going back to 1950. This is pretty wild. With those nine data sets, and it shows the S&P 500 index performance six months after each of those nine data sets with a median, with the median number, and 12 months after, and six months after the average is 8.4% with one data set that's negative out of the nine, only one. Now on the one year basis, same statistic, eight out of nine were positive. And I even hate to say 31.5%, but that's the data going back to 1950. Right. And the one, the, the one caveat I will say here that uh, GDP can be revised several months after the initial number comes out. So I just want people to be aware that even though this was a negative GDP print, it's the initial print, it's the initial print, and it could be revised a couple months down the road. So we could look back at this by the end of the year, or the beginning of next year, and it's like, okay, it, GDP was revised and it wasn't two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. So I just want to throw that out there. Fair enough, because the last point I want to make is about this current, let's call it, I'm going to call it a recession because of the data where it sits today. We've never have had a technical recession with 300,000 monthly job gains 
during that six-month period. That's what we've averaged. And I think it tells investors two things, Mark. One, the jobless, uh, the job losses during COVID were really bad, probably worse than the data actually showed. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the speed at which inflation picked up post-COVID and the damage it did to the economy was dramatic. Those mm -hmm. are the two kind of takeaways when I think about that, that, that piece of information. Yeah, and it's just, and you know, me and you never like to say, like we've never been in an environment like this before. This time is different than every other environment we've ever been in, but it is very unique in that we had this, you know, two month, three month period of just economic collapse where activity just came to a screeching halt in 2020. Yes. And then you have all this stimulus come into the system. People have a bunch of money. They're spending money. We have supply issues. We can't get products over here. So prices go up. Government still is handing out money. Demand is still high. Supply chain is still messed up. Yep. This is what happens. And now we're seeing the pendulum swing the other way, right? Supply chain is getting back to normal. A lot of companies have a lot of product. Viewers haven't heard us say that term in a long time. Supply chain issues. But people are pulling back spending a little bit now. Yeah. Right? So this pendulum just goes back and forth and back and forth during these economic cycles. And this time it's just happening a lot quicker than it usually does oh, because yeah. of COVID. Absolutely. So interesting thought experiment. Um, I will uh, get up and... Welcome at Taylor Ledbetter back in for the financial planning topic of the week. So I will see you all next week. Look forward to it, Mark. Thanks, buddy. So uh, next up is Taylor Ledbetter. She is our uh, paraplanner here at the office. She's a wealth advisor. Um, she is a wealth of knowledge. Taylor, welcome. You're a fan favorite. It's good to be back. <laughs> so what do you have uh, for the viewers and listeners this week? Yep. Um, so I read an article on Kiplinger.com okay. and it's called What Order Should You Tap Into Your Retirement Funds? It should be a good one. Mm -hmm. All right. Yep. Um, so obviously people could have, you know, traditional IRAs, which are pre-tax mm -hmm. brokerage accounts, you know, Roth IRAs, which are tax free. But pulling money without a plan can have negative implications. So it's important to have a strategy, you know, before going into it. Love this. Um, so it's also important to understand how taxes apply to different types of income and to plan accordingly. Um, it's good to have large amounts of money in different tax buckets. As I referenced earlier, you know, pre-tax, tax-free, which be the Roth IRAs, um, and then brokerage accounts as well. But if you're not careful, taxes can eat away your account value very quickly um, if you don't have a strategy. Okay. Um, according to a nationwide survey by Motley Fool in 2021, 42% of current retirees reported they did not consider how taxes would impact their retirement income. Interesting. And that's a huge number. That's a big number, Taylor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it really does make a big difference. And I think that's one of the most important things that you should plan for. So for 42% on average, you know, people hmm. to not plan for that, I think is a huge deal. Big deal. Um, so from this article, first, they said you should withdraw from your taxable accounts. Okay. Um, these are not tax advantaged accounts and include check-ins, savings accounts, or just standard brokerage accounts. Yep. 
and they also include employer stock purchase plans. Got it. Um, so taxable brokerage accounts are your least efficient accounts because they're subject to capital gains and dividend taxes. By using these funds first in retirement, you're giving your tax-advantaged accounts, like an IRA or a Roth IRA, more time to grow and compound. Brokerage accounts will never grow as quickly as tax-advantaged accounts because they're subject to the annual drag of taxation on interest, dividends, and capital gains. Yep. And I did agree with all of that while reading the article. Yeah. Um, they said that second, you should withdraw from your tax-deferred account, so an IRA. Okay. Um, one reason they brought this up was because if you withdraw from the IRA second, mm -hmm. um, you'll know what those tax rates are going to be more in the short term. In the year you do those withdrawals. Correct. Yes. Um, from a tax perspective, it doesn't matter whether you start withdrawing first from a traditional IRA or a 401k, but keep in mind that required minimum distributions for both accounts begin in the year you turn age 72. 72, yep. Um, so I do agree with, you know, saving tax-free accounts last just to maximize that tax-free growth. And the one thing with doing the IRAs or the tax-deferred account second is just you're letting that RMD amount, you know, gradually increase the longer you wait to deplete that. Absolutely. Um, so last, like I just said, you should withdraw from those tax-free assets, Roth IRAs, Roth 401ks last. Um, money in Roth IRAs or Roth 401ks are not taxable income when you withdraw from them as long as you follow the rules, meaning that account holders have to be at least 59 and a half or older and have held the account for at least five years. Um, and withdrawals are tax-free for your heirs, regardless of their age, if the original account was opened at least five years before. Correct. Um, so the idea is for the account holder to let that Roth IRA sit and grow tax-free as long as possible before tapping into it. Um, there's also no required minimum distribution for a Roth IRA. Which is a big benefit. Um, it's huge. Big benefit. Which is why I, well, one reason I agree with withdrawing from that account last. Correct. Um, the IRS requires any Roth conversion to have occurred at least five years before you access the money. Otherwise, you may be charged taxes or penalties for withdrawals. I know I've talked about the conversion a few times yeah, that, on that, the podcast. Those are popular topics. Mm -hmm. Yes. So would you agree with the order of distribution? I would absolutely agree with the order of distribution from my viewpoint. Um, and within the practice, I rely upon the intellect of you and Aaron uh, when it kind of comes to this topic within itself. The only other comment I guess I would have is I do know there's instances where maybe someone gets to their, say, mid-80s, Taylor, and it might make sense for them to take a little bit more money from their traditional IRA than just their RMD. Why is that? Their beneficiaries, their children, might be in a higher tax bracket today. And so it makes sense for the, the parent to pay that lower taxation rate, get that money out of the account. So then when they put it in the brokerage, eventually when, say, that client passes, the, the kids get a stepped up cost basis on mm -hmm. those assets. Mm -hmm. 
So there are instances where maybe later in life, an accelerated withdrawal from a traditional IRA could make financial sense. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. And I think also, you know, maybe another reason to withdraw from that pre-tax IRA, maybe, maybe first, mm -hmm. um, you know, if your account balance is extremely high, you'll have a really large RMD amount later on at 72. That's a great point, Taylor, because remember with that forced RMD, you can't control your taxation rate. The mm -hmm. government's forcing you to get a large IRA, that RMD could be in the six figures. Yeah, exactly. And that's another reason that sometimes I brought up a Roth conversion, because if you're in a lower bracket early on in retirement, it just makes sense to maybe pay less taxes now, convert that money to your Roth, yep. um, just overall minimizing all the taxes that you're going to pay. And I think the, you know, the rule of thumb here is, you know, whatever financial professional uh, that you're utilizing, you know, if you're kind of newly retired, I would be running those calculations every year. How much could I convert to a Roth without putting myself into the next tax bracket? Those are important conversations that you should be having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a very important part for, you know, people who are about to retire or maybe just retired because, you know, specifically that first year of retirement, yep. you might be in a much lower tax bracket than, you know, the year before when you were working. So typically that's the time range that you would look at doing a, a Roth conversion. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Anything else you'd like to discuss regarding this topic? Um, no, not necessarily. I just thought it was important to bring up. I know there's lots of different perspectives and strategies out there, mm -hmm. but I think that is the general rule of thumb and just the general order that you should kind of follow. But again, everyone's situation is completely different. Yes. So it also just comes down to kind of crunching those numbers and seeing which one is the most tax efficient way. Well said, Taylor. Thank you for being part of the podcast this week. Thank you. All right, we're going to sign off. So thank you for listening to episode number 161 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope all of you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. 
Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.